to Raish Rambling, a podcast about science, spirituality, and everything in between. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to the first real episode of Raish Rambling. Um, I had kind of hoped to put this out a little bit earlier, but I got loads of shifts at work, so kind of had to wait, but doing it now, and I'm super excited. Um, though I had been thinking about scripting this, and I wrote a script, and it was so, so long, and I read over it, and I read over it again, and then one more time, and I was just going... Okay. We'll do it live! Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! Right. Fucking thing sucks! Um, yeah, um, I haven't been able to get to the gym in over a week now, and so I'm feeling really, really volatile, um, but I figured that I might as well wing it, um, cause, you know, starting out with this podcast I didn't really have any clear idea of what I was gonna do, the, um, science, spirituality, and everything in between concept just came to me actually as I was trying to prepare for this episode, um, and I feel like because this is race rambling after all, it's gonna be alright if I kind of go with the flow, um, and, uh, you know, prepare my show notes after I do the show instead of the other way around, <laughs> which makes more sense now that I think about it, but anyway, um, what I want to talk about in this episode is magic. What is magic? Um, and the title that I have on the blog is Magic, a Probabilistic and Thermodynamic Approach, which sounds kind of like most of the biochem textbooks I've had, you know, really just impenetrable, but I, I promise I'm not going to sound like the Red Book, which is what I call... Uh, molecular biology of the cell, which is horrid and terrible, and I'm not going to be like the the protein folding textbook that I had to read that was just pompous bullshit. Um, I'm going to try to make this accessible, and I hope that this is at least a little bit interesting to you. Um, I guess I should probably put two disclaimers here. The first one this is just my opinion. As all the other podcasters say, this is just my opinion. I am not an expert. And, you know, being in academics, I am slowly developing imposter syndrome. So not only do I not think I'm an expert, I think I don't know anything worth mentioning. Um, so if I put this out and don't redo it several times, it will be kind of a miracle. And the other, other warning, caveat, addendum thing I should put is that there's going to be some funky terminology and science and statistics stuff that I'm going to talk about. Please, please don't freak out. It's actually really simple. Um, Wikipedia has really good illustrated articles about a lot, of, a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about. So I will link to those or at least put pictures in the show notes for you. Okay, this is like the fifth time I've tried to record this, I have just been getting so frustrated with it, but took a walk, had some dinner, ate some blueberries, so I think maybe I will be alright this time around. Um, alright, so what is magic? 
Um, I was wondering kind of how I was going to approach this subject, um, and I remembered something that I had heard on Inciting a Brouhaha on um, episode 5, actually. And uh, Pagan Flavored Atheist had written in, not written in, written in, and uh, offered the definition that magic is the magnification of probability. And I pretty much approach magic exactly like that. I believe that magic is the practice of magnifying probabilities or diminishing probabilities. Um, and I approach it this way because we live in a probabilistic world, um, and the probabilities that run it are heavily affected by thermodynamics, or in simpler terms, they're affected by the amount of available energy in a given system. And I was trying in my previous takes to illustrate this with analogies about coin flips and electron clouds and stuff like that, but the best analogy and the analogy that I am most familiar with is actually protein folding. Um, so I guess I should kind of start out from the basics of proteins, but when you are producing a protein, um, messenger RNA in your cell is being in your cells is being translated by ribosomes, which are these little protein RNA machines, and um, as the messenger RNA is being read by the ribosome, the ribosome is pumping out this long chain of amino acids called a polypeptide, and uh, as the nascent chain emerges from the ribosome, it's getting bumped around by all the things in solution in the cell that are vibrating randomly just by virtue of the temperature of the solution. Um, you know, at body temperature, there's actually quite a lot of random vibration going on. There's quite a lot of mechanical thermal, mechanical and thermal energy available. And as the chain is jostled, it's going to begin to fold, and it's going to fold randomly until the entire chain is formed and released. And then it's going to continue on this folding path until it reaches its native conformation. And there was a problem uh, very early on in biochemistry trying to determine how exactly proteins fold, uh, because the native conformation is the most thermodynamically favorable. It's the lowest energy state, and we know this because it's very hard to force the protein to change its shape without adding some sort of other chemical energy to it, like phosphorylation but proteins appeared to fold randomly, and uh, people speculated that there was a what's called a folding landscape, and that all folds were possible, but the native conformation, the aggregation of all of the correct folds, was the lowest energy state, and they drew up this diagram of probabilities and energies that looked kind of like a golf course. Um, it was like a flat region of intermediates, and then all the way at the bottom of the hole was the native conformation. And this seemed, you know, decent enough, but there was a paradox, because if, if a protein folded randomly and all of the folds were equally likely, it would take an infinite amount of time for a protein to fold, 
Um, and we know this is not the case, because life exists. And eventually researchers realized that this was a thermodynamic problem, um, because every time a physical change occurs, the uh, available energy in a system also changes, and every time a fold occurs in a peptide chain, the energy available is actually reduced because uh, hydrophobic groups are moved closer to each other, so they're not trying to get away from the water, and hydrophilic groups are exposed to the solvent, so they're not trying to twist out of some strange greasy pocket inside of the protein. And uh, so what they realized was that um, all of the folds were possible, but the probability of each fold was actually determined by the energy state of the system. And once you had made your first fold, the probability of all the other folds changed. And this led to the modern, modern model, which is called the folding funnel. Um, and I'm going to post a picture of this on the show notes because it makes way more sense when you look at it. But essentially, it is a graph of all of the protein conformations that you can have, you know, from the very high energy, completely extended, unfolded chain, all the way down to the native conformation, which is the most favorable. And these are all plotted against the energies of the folds and the probabilities of the folds. And what you find when you have this in three dimensions is that after you fold it once, the energy has decreased, and so the probability of all the other folds has changed. And in order to reach certain folds, you actually have to add energy to climb back up the funnel. And so my whole point in telling this story about proteins is that energy and probability are very closely linked, and when an event occurs, the energy of your system changes, and the probability of all the possible outcomes changes along with it. And we can view events as positions on a folding funnel, um, and we're kind of sliding down that folding funnel as we go through our lives, and every event that occurs changes the probability of every other event around us by dint of energetics. And so when we're doing magic, what we're doing ultimately is adding energy to our system. And when we do that, because we are increasing the energy of the system, we are increasing the probability of all of the events around us on the folding funnel. You know, the higher up on the folding funnel you are, the easier it is to get to more places on it. And this whole energetic model helps to almost explain away the economic argument, um, because a lot of people ask, well, if magic works, why don't big businesses use it to their advantage? If divination works, why don't big businesses use it to speculate or to douse for oil or something like that? And the answer is simply that it's too energetically unfavorable. You know, it requires a lot of energy to do even a very simple spell. So one person might be able to do a healing spell and exert a good deal of energy to accelerate someone's healing. Um, but suppose, for example, you were trying to cast a healing spell on 50 people. Well, everybody is going to have a different problem and their bodies are all going to be responding differently to those problems. So it's going to require 
not just the sum of all the energy of the individual healing spells, but quite a lot more than that. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to douse for something, you have to have a dowser, you have to have a dowser who is reputable, and you have to be able to pay him not only for his time, but also for the mineral rights when he eventually discovers something. So it's just economically and and energetically unfeasible to apply magic on a very broad industrial scale. And this also kind of speaks to uh, Firelight and Valma's debate about the purple tree that grows diamonds, um, because Valma maintains that everything is possible, but our psychic sensor gets in the way. And Firelight maintains that some things are actual impossibilities. And the energetic argument reconciles these two sides by saying, yes, everything is possible, but some things, for example, a purple tree that grows diamonds, are so out of the ordinary, so way out there on the probability distribution, that it would require an insane, almost unattainable amount of energy to cause them to be possible, let alone to cause them to occur with any real reliability. And, I mean, the reliability of spells in general is actually quite low, simply because of the amount of energy we have to put into them to begin with. Even simple ones, as I said, require quite a lot of energy, and even then, you know, we don't have a very high success rate with them. We do, in general, you know, as witches, have good success rates with our spells, but we're nowhere near being perfect with them. So... Anyway, that's kind of my view on magic. You know, it's a a way of adding energy to the system around us to change the probabilities of all the possible outcomes that could occur. And I am just under 15 minutes now, so I'm going to play a couple promos, and then I'll come back and do a little science segment on a very interesting article that was published just last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. Hello, I'm Corey. And I'm Lane. And we're the hosts of New World Witchery, the search for American traditional witchcraft. If you're looking for a show about magic, specifically North American folk magic, then come check us out. Some of the subjects we'll be covering are hoodoo and root work, powwow, New Orleans-style voodoo, Appalachian Granny Magic, Ozark Mountain Magic, Brujeria and Corinturismo, and New England Witchery. In addition, we'll be having discussions about things like effective spellcrafting, spellcrafting successes and failures, magic for oneself and magic for others, magical terminology, hexing, and being in or out of the broom closet. If that sounds like the show for you, come find us at newworldwitchery.wordpress.com or find us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. And be well. Grab a pitchfork, light a torch, and open your mind. Hi, I'm Firelight, inviting you to join me as I question conventional thinking and light a fire under what makes us comfortable. I'm tearing down tradition and taking a hard look at what makes society tick on my podcast, Inciting a Riot. Join the riot through iTunes or incitingariot.com. Until then, enjoy this excellent pagan podcast, Inciting a Riot. 
Lighting a fire under comfortable thinking. How are you doing here, Meredith? I'm doing science so hard right now. I'm doing science so hard right now. so excited that I got to use that intro. I have been waiting so long for it. Okay, so I want to talk about the preliminary report on the E. coli outbreak in northern Germany that was published just last month in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a very interesting report, especially from a microbiological and epidemiological standpoint. Um, the outbreak occurred in May and was centered around Hamburg, Bremen, Schleswig-Holstein, and Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, with uh, restaurant-associated clusters in Nordrhein-Westfalia and Hesse. Um, and it was incredibly virulent and spread very quickly, and uh, you know made headlines for forever and ever. And it was particularly notable not just because it spread quickly, but because about a quarter of those who were infected developed HUS, or hemolytic uremic syndrome, which essentially means that their red blood cells begin to come apart, um, small clots formed in their bloodstreams, their feces and urine became bloody, and their kidneys began to exhibit signs of toxicity. You know, really, really nasty stuff, um, which is usually associated with, uh, with the contaminated meat. This was big thing. Um, E. coli was quickly determined to be the culprit behind the outbreak of HUS, but the strain was strange in that it was both enteroaggregative, too many vowels, Um, and that means that it clumped up in the intestines, so you had like these little little colonies of of, uh, bacteria kind of stuck on the sides of the small intestine, Um, but it also produced gigatoxin. And enteroaggregation is associated with serotype O104H4, um, which is the serotype of the bacteria that was isolated from these cases, and it's a human-native strain. But shigatoxin is generally associated with bovine strains, like O157H7, which, you know, raises the question, is this a totally novel pathogen, or is it just a development from something that we've already seen? And how resistant is it to our current standards of treatment? Um, And though the strain did turn out to be unique, it did share characteristics with one other strain that was isolated from two individuals in 2001. So it wasn't, you know, entirely novel, but the characteristics were very rare. Um, And microbiologically, it's interesting because it really does combine the worst of both worlds, so to speak. Um, It carries the gene for shigatoxin 2, which is called STX2A, but it lacks genes associated with it, like STX1, EAE, and EHX. And it carries its enteroaggregative genes like ATTA, AAP, and three forms of AGG on a virulence plasmid, which means that way back in the early history of 
the bacteria. It wasn't actually in her aggregative, but it picked up these genes from another source. And the novel strain also demonstrated resistance to ampicillin-type antibiotics, cephalosporins, and fluoroquinolones. Um, but thankfully it wasn't resistant to cipro and carbanopems. And these characteristics suggest that it probably it was probably an enteroaggregative strain that picked up STX2A from a virus called a bacteriophage um, and sort of, I guess, came by its antibiotic resistances, honestly, you know. It probably picked them up from other strains that had these uh, resistance factors. And in addition to being interesting microbiologically, um, the North Germany strain was interesting uh, from an epidemiological standpoint because there was a very high occurrence of HUS, like quite significantly higher than even the most virulent strains known, um, which usually, you know, caused HUS in about 6% of cases, maybe 10% of cases at most, but in this case it was actually 20 to 25%. Um, and instead of affecting children, as it usually did, um, most of the patients who developed HUS were adults, um, which was very interesting. And for some reason, and uh, researchers really don't know why, but women were more likely than men to develop HUS. Um, so there could be a good reason for this, it could just be a fluke, but it is interesting to see in the profile of a disease. And so, taken together, the serotype and the enteroaggregative genes in the strain uh, tend to indicate that the pathogen came from humans rather than from cows. So usually when we see problems with um, HUS-inducing E. coli, usually comes from, uh, you know, infected meat or um, vegetables that have been contaminated by bovine manure. Um, but in this case, there was probably some sort of contact with human fecal matter. Um, and the contaminated food was believed to be cucumbers, which I know invites a lot of really unpleasant jokes, but um, it's interesting that it was cucumbers because usually this sort of thing is associated with difficult-to-clean foods like uh, sprouts or baby spinach, but in this case it was cucumbers, which are relatively easy to clean and are also uh, very frequently irradiated for sterility. Um, this is just a very interesting case in general, and uh, it really drove home some important points about, well, about biology and about disease. Um, you know, evolution is happening all around us, constantly, and we don't know what the effects of human activities are on evolution. We're only just beginning to understand the ramifications of our interference in nature, um, especially through antibiotic-resistant strains. There's actually a class of pathogens called ESCAPE, that's E-S-K-A-P-E, -E, um, which is an acronym, and they are all incredibly virulent and uh, have developed have developed antibiotic resistances over the years because of antibiotic overuse. So we really don't know how this evolution is going to manifest itself. Um, and it also just goes to show that contamination can come from anywhere, even from the farmers themselves. So sterile fertilizer is important in industrial farming, 
and sterilization with irradiation is also important for anything that's going to market. And in the, uh, the typical agribusiness world, I really think that these ought to be standards because they will help to allay these sorts of problems. You know, sterilized fertilizer means that you're not going to have any sort of pathogens coming in from whatever animal products are in the fertilizer, and sterilization with irradiation, which I know is big and unpopular and controversial and all that, but sterilization with irradiation will help to ensure that if there was any contamination, there isn't going to be any risk to the consumer because the surface of the vegetable is going to be sterilized before it goes to market. And you know, an alternative, not really a perfect alternative, but an alternative to this is peeling all raw fruits and vegetables. This isn't really, you know, feasible for certain foods, especially actual vegetables like celery and sprouts. Um, but if you're if you're insistent upon buying non-irradiated food, I would definitely recommend, you know, peeling it first. Um, and if you just want to avoid all of the problems inherent in modern agribusiness, you know, uh, chemically treated and irradiated crops, then you really need to go organic. And by organic, I mean really, really organic, because human contamination aside, conventionally farmed cows frequently are host to another shigatoxin strain, um, which generally has a serotype that I just talked about, 0157H7. Um, and if you fertilize with contaminated manure, you're going to get this terrible, you know, HUS-inducing E. coli all over the vegetables. So if you're going to fertilize with manure for your organic organic farm, you can't just, you know, say, well, I'm using animal waste, so that's okay. You really either need to sterilize the manure through irradiation or heat kill, or you have to use manure only from organically farmed grass-fed cows, which do not play host to the uh, shigatoxin strains because their stomachs aren't acidic enough. Alright, so I'm going to cut myself off there before I start talking about food politics, because I have already grossed you out enough, I think. Um, but I hope you found this segment a little bit interesting. I was just completely engrossed by the article when I read it. And if you have the have the opportunity to, if you're in college or if you have journal memberships through your job, I would definitely, definitely recommend going over to the NEJM website and uh, reading the article in its entirety because it really is quite interesting. And if you are completely uninterested and totally grossed out, I hope that nonetheless I talked about a few things that were perhaps food for thought. Um, not to gross you out anymore or anything. Um, anyway, I have gone on for nearly half an hour now, so I think that that's pretty good for a first episode, and I um, am really glad that you joined me for it. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you will join me in about a fortnight for my next episode. I will try super hard to get it out right on time. Um, and till then, I hope you'll keep rambling and you'll be well. This podcast was recorded under Ubuntu with Audacity. The intro
music is Cold Funk by Kevin McLeod, the outro is Raw, and the science music is MTA, both by the same. They are available from his royalty-free site, Incompetech.com, and are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. The voiceover for the science intro is from Jason Steele's I Know the Elephant.